night we're in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 to 12. In a very real sense, one paragraph of Scripture deals with the uh, suffering, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Last uh, Sunday night, we dealt with the passage concerning the death of Christ, which is Isaiah 52, 13 to Isaiah 53, verse 9. We talked about his sufferings under the headings of astonishment, anonymity. Nobody but God knew who he was. Anguish and affliction. But we come tonight to the capstone of the Old Testament, the very highest point of Old Testament revelation. Indeed, an eyewitness account and a prediction too clear to be coincidence to talk in Isaiah 53, 10 to 12, about the resurrection of Christ. The great climax of the work of Jesus Christ was after his death. It came after he had offered himself as an offering for the sins of the world. It came after he had been known publicly. He had first been widely accepted and acclaimed and then rejected by many. The tide of public opinion turned against him and he was delivered to death as a criminal in the Roman Empire. And up to that point, his career had certainly been very spectacular. But even though God had predicted it, there was not anybody in the Jewish nation who really understood what Isaiah had said when he talked about in one breath a man who was dead and in the next he was alive with prolonged days. They didn't understand it. How unique that his death was not the end of his work, but it was only the beginning. It was his greatest achievement. And it was the means by which many have been, are being, and shall be reconciled to God. His death is the only reason he has, as Isaiah uses the term here, offspring, spiritual offspring to follow him. It was by the planting of seed, the seed of his body and his blood, that he reaped a harvest that has sealed doom and defeat for Satan and his emissaries for eternity. The cross was the center of his work. And because he was faithful even unto death on the cross, he himself has become the very center of human history. Nations of the earth who owe him no allegiance date the days of their existence in two pieces, from before and after. Jesus Christ. Tonight I want us to look at the amazing prediction of Isaiah concerning the resurrection of Christ. In the first part of verse 10, here is the fulfillment of righteousness. Here is a very strange statement indeed. As Isaiah says, the Lord was pleased to bruise him or literally to crush him. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would offer himself as a guilt offering. I suppose the thing that is the hardest for our human and finite minds to take in and really understand was that the death of Jesus Christ was 
by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Oh, I can more easily understand how God in His great love would see how man had gone the wrong way and would be willing to come up with a plan by which He might save those who had wandered astray. But it is beyond me to understand how in the divine counsels before time, before the earth, before creation, before the rebellion of Satan himself, in the eons of his pre-existence, God knew that if he made an earth and peopled it with creatures like himself with the ability to choose, that they would inevitably choose wrong. And he would be left with a choice, either that every such creature would be eternally and completely irrevocably damned, or that he himself would do something about it. It is with unbelieving ears that we hear it pleased God to crush him if he would offer himself as a guilt offering. The bruises suffered by Christ on the cross go far beyond the physical. For it was at the cross and on the cross that he was torn away from the loving clutch of his father for the first time ever in the eons of preexistence before time was in the never-ending circle of eternity. He had always been one with the father, but he and the father were separated completely as he who knew no sin became sin itself for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And the only key to seeing the very edge of His love, the only key to getting any handle on, on how it was that God was pleased to crush Him is to realize that for reasons inexplicable to us, God loved us so much that by choice, ahead of time, knowing always that it would happen, he was willing to give up his son to death on the cross that we might know him. Notice in verse 10, it, the Greek says literally, he gave, the Hebrew rather, he gave his soul as a guilt offering. I think any of us that have been exposed to mental anguish of any kind, whether it is great grief or great disappointment, great loss, failure, emotional disturbance, weakness of the mind, whatever it may be, any who have been exposed to any of these things realize that mental anguish is far worse than physical. But yet beyond the mental and the emotional, nobody but Christ knows what spiritual anguish is because he gave his soul as a guilt offering. Here is the fulfillment of righteousness. One day God himself led the lamb of sacrifice to the altar and there he offered 
that lamb, his son, for the sins of the world, that righteousness might be fulfilled and that we might be saved. Then in the last part of verse 10, in the first part of verse 11, here is the foretelling of resurrection. Resuscitation has occurred in Scripture more than once. Resuscitation occurred when some of the prophets raised the dead back to mortal, perishable existence. Resuscitation occurred when Jesus touched the body of a little girl, the daughter of the only daughter of her parents, and brought her back to life. Resuscitation occurred when Jesus cried to a tomb where a man was rotting in the stench of death and cried, Lazarus, come forth, and a miracle of biology occurred, and Lazarus came forth. But all such men as these, the little girl, all of those were resuscitated to the same kind of existence they had known before. We often speak of the resurrection, but in point of time, up until this time and until the end of time, there is need only to speak of resurrection, not the resurrection, for there has been only one. Jesus Christ was not resuscitated. He was not restored to human existence. He was raised with a body beyond the reach of sickness, beyond the reach of death, and not bound by the dimensions of time and space in which we live. And in this passage is foretold clearly and plainly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says something very strange. It is said that he was crushed, that he was offered as a guilt offering, and a guilt offering was an offering that was put to death and sacrificed on the altar. Then he goes on to say he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. He will see a seed. His seed are the redeemed of all ages, but especially that which is also called his bride, the church. For in Revelation 7, 9, John says, After these things I looked, and behold a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. He will prolong his days. His reign, as Isaiah says elsewhere, shall be endless. Of his government, Isaiah says, there shall be no end. His offspring are his spiritual descendants. And he achieved them by the travail, the birth pangs of his soul, the anguish of death. There are no limits to his power, nor to his kingdom. For Isaiah says that the plans, the goodwill of the Lord shall prosper at his hand. Here is the foretelling of resurrection. And Isaiah says that he will see it and be satisfied. Now you know from our vantage point, what could this mean except resurrection? What possible meaning could it have apart from resurrection? But the Jews did not see it. The Jews in the day of Jesus believed that the entire 
passages in Isaiah, all of these that we have come to call the servant songs, dealt with them. So heightened was their paranoia and their sense of martyrdom that they believed they were the poor, suffering servant of Jehovah and that the bodies of their martyrs were the blood that was to be planted in the redemption that was to be brought. But a casual examination of Isaiah rules that out. He talks of his singular, his soul. He talks of he himself in very specific ways. And here indeed, crystal clear and transparent is the foretelling of resurrection. And then in the latter part of verse 11, in all of verse 12, here is what I have called the foundation of redemption. There are many Christians who take their salvation very lightly, who've never bothered to try and glimpse the work of Christ and understand even a little bit of what He did. We take it so lightly because we have never considered it and because we are not aware of the great price and the depth of agony that he paid. Isaiah has already talked about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. But now in this passage, he comes back once more, back again to elaborate and to draw the curtain back just a little bit and to give us a glimpse of what Christ has done. In no other way could the justice of God have been satisfied than by the death of Jesus Christ. And this death continues to bear fruit and shall for all the ages of human existence. In the latter part of verse 11, we see how justification was made possible by the death of Christ. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many and he will bear their iniquities. Justification was made possible because in God's perfect universe where sin demands and will have its satisfaction, where justice demands and will have punishment for sin, he himself bore in his own body, as Paul says, our sins on the tree. Christ shall obtain the harvest of the seed that he planted by the salvation of all believers of all ages who come to him. He will have it by substitution for someone had to die. And the choice was clear. If I must pay for my sins, the only way that I can do it is by eternal death, eternal punishment, never-ending separation for God from God because there is no merit in me and there is not enough justice in me, enough goodness, enough innocence, enough righteousness to pay the debt of my sins if I suffered for all eternity and God ended eternity, still my debt would not be paid. But one had to stand in our place. In order to do that, he had to be made in the warp and the woof of humanity. He had to be like us in all points, yet without sin. For if he died by virtue of his own sin, then his death could not pay for your sins. 
or for mine. And so we would say that his death is vicarious. That means he experienced it on behalf of others. It is substitutionary. He took our place. It is expiatory. The word expiation, he paid the price and bore the guilt. And he was the propitiation, the price paid for our sins. So here is justification made possible by his substitution. Then in the early part of verse 12, here is his reward. Isaiah says, Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils of war or the booty with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. The spoils of war are his. He bought them. He earned them. The defeated enemies and the rewarded multitudes will gather before his throne one day and he will separate the sheep from the goats, the wicked from the righteous, and the nations that have forgotten God shall depart into everlasting and unquenchable fire. And the righteous shall pass into the grace and the presence of their master. In the remainder of verse 12, and it is here that I plan to spend some time, here is his sacrifice from a new angle. In Isaiah and in four brief passages of the New Testament, this perhaps the greatest motivation that I have ever had to commit my life to him is revealed just a bit. God could have given us great detail about it, but I do not believe that we could have endured a full knowledge of what it cost Christ to buy our salvation. Here is his sacrifice. It says he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors. He himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Volumes could have been written if God had but elaborated on those points. Notice that he poured out his soul to death, not just his life, but his soul. Now I want to ask you to think with me for a moment and then we will verify with the Scriptures that we're not thinking too freely and going beyond the Scripture. The penalty of sin is not properly physical death. The penalty for sin is separation from God in a place of damnation. Could He be the Savior if He did not bear that penalty? on our behalf. I suppose that I have grown up with a notion that when Christ cried aloud and gave up His spirit to death, He went immediately to the right hand of the Father and there passed the time until the third day when He rose from the dead. But I do not believe that kind of a death would have paid the price for our sins. The waters into which we go now are quite deep. 
It is beyond my understanding, but I believe it to be the Scripture. I want you to look with me to the New Testament very quickly. What I am saying, and I'll say it in plain language now rather than at the end so you can follow me, is that in order to pay for our sins, Jesus Christ had to go to hell. 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19. Coincidental, this is the passage that we'll deal with next Sunday. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also, in which refers to the previous verse, in the process of his death in paying for our sins, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Ephesians 4, verses 8 to 10. Paul says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he, left, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? And the commentators in the Greek scholars say that this phrase, the lower parts of the earth, designates hell. He who descended is himself also. He who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. A literal reading of the Greek for the lower parts of the earth is he descended deeper than the earth. Romans 10 verse 7. You know, I get the feeling that Paul, Peter, and some of the other New Testament writers had vistas of understanding that they didn't share with us. For this sounds very much like the passage in Ephesians and like the one in 1 Peter. Romans 10, 7, Who will descend into the pit or the abyss? That is, to bring up Christ from the dead. And I want you to camp there for just a minute. I don't want to press this too far because any truth pressed too far becomes heresy. Any truth. But notice the question in Romans 10, 7, who shall descend into the abyss? The abyss is a, a term in apocalyptic literature denoting the place of punishment of the wicked. Who shall descend into the abyss to bring up Christ from the dead? And then Hebrews 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus, our Lord. My point is this. In the way that we reckon time, there was a point of time, that point immediately after the death of Christ, 
when in the final throes of his agony he cried aloud, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment when God withdrew his hand, when God turned his back and the sin of the world was laid on him, he died. But at the point of his death, he descended into the place of punishment so that he might pay the eternal price for our sins. Now all of that happened in what you and I would call time. There was a time frame, a period of parts of three days between death and resurrection. But in another manner of speaking, and this is the part I don't want to take too far, in, a number, in another manner of speaking, God stands above time completely. And in a very real sense, there is within the consciousness of God Almighty a constant and eternal awareness of the horrors of hell because he himself descended there to pay for our sins. You see, God being omnipotent and all-knowing, omniscient, standing above us, knowing in everything, yet Calvary and the period after his death added a new dimension to the experience of God. For in a way that defies our understanding, God, who can do no evil, who can be touched by nothing tainted, who cannot even look upon sin, God died and went to hell to pay for our sins. Who is he? who ascended, but he who first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Then Isaiah says that he continues to stand in our place. He says very simply, he interceded for the transgressors. Remember that Isaiah at this point of his ministry was like John when he wrote the Revelation. Isaiah was given a panoramic view of everything that would happen in the ministry and the death of Christ. And he was left in his humanity to write down things that he could not understand. But I wonder if before the end of his revelation, Isaiah heard one on the cross in his native tongue intercede on behalf of a thief beside him and promise him today, you shall be with me in paradise. This work of intercession began on the cross, but it continues even today. For Hebrews 7 verse 25 says, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. I read a story just recently of a problem child. 
as he grew up, he was incorrigible, and there was nothing that his parents, who loved him very deeply, could seem to do that would make any headway with him. They tried to be consistent and firm in discipline, and yet nothing seemed to work. And one day, after some more trouble and after continued problems and after much agony, his parents made a decision. They told him that he would have to go to the little attic room of his house, and he would have to stay there, existing on a meager diet until he was ready to obey and to be a meaningful part of his family. That endured through the afternoon and through the evening. Late that night, the father, tossing and turning, unable to sleep, began to remember that his little boy had a morbid fear of the dark, that he hated to be alone. And the father began to be greatly tempted to back out on the punishment he had prescribed. But then he realized that he could not, for the sake of his son, do that. Finally, he gathered his blanket and his pillow, and he made his way to the attic. As he came into the little attic room, the son, very much awake, said, Why, what are you doing? He said, Son, you've been wrong, and you must be punished. But I have decided that I will bear your punishment with you. And there for two more days, until because of love and ingratitude, his heart was broken and his attitude was changed. Father and son dwelt side by side enduring the punishment. That does not begin to touch what God did for us. For not only was he a man tempted, tested, tried, as we are in every point, yet without sin. But he gave himself up to death, even death on the cross, even punishment in the place of the damned, that we might be saved. And I would remind you that so great was the price that God has paid for us that the salvation of no Christian will fail until the sacrifice of Christ <coughs> is nullified and His blood is washed away. Here is the resurrection of Christ. There is the fulfillment of righteousness. There is the foretelling of resurrection. And there is the foundation of redemption. And the thing that we must marvel at is this. The results of what He has done. Our salvation bought with a price of eternal value is ours for the taking. And I wonder if tonight, as we ponder the unbelievable fact that not only did He die, but He was damned for us, might not become a motivation to live for Him every day. Might we not now understand the drive behind the ministry of Paul who wore himself out, who pursued his mission to the throne of Nero where he forfeited his life? 
Might we not now understand the urgency of the risen Christ as He says to all believers, You, now, all of you, go into all the world. Tell the good news. Make disciples. Can we not be motivated to realize that hell for any human is pointless because God has died for our sins. Here is the resurrection of Christ. It is first a cause for mourning and then a cause for wonder and awe and finally a cause for eternal choruses of praise around His throne. May we pray. Father, I thank you for the truth Scripture reveals. And Lord, I can but wish that we had more detail and you told us a little more about what Jesus did. But Lord, we know that you know best and we know that you have told us what we need to know and that you've revealed to us all that we can endure and understand. And Lord, I have no ability to express the depths of meaning there. My imagination literally flies as I think that Christ was in hell for us. Father, draw back the curtain tonight. Let us look beyond the agony of Calvary as awful as it was to punishment that you endured when you descended into the lower part of the earth. Lord, by virtue of what we see, draw from us a new and unqualified commitment to the Lordship of Jesus. May we this night resolve irrevocably to do and to be whatever you choose. Lord, I thank you for the stirring of the winds of your presence for the lives that you touch week in and week out, for the signs that harvest is near. And I just thank you for letting us be a part of it. Accept us and cleanse us and employ us to the glory of Jesus. For I pray in his name. Amen.